Welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and episode 11 is with John Bulgens. John actually lives out in California. He's the global brand manager for Harrow Bikes. He grew up in Dundee and then moved to Australia and became a pro BMX rider. Then started up his own company called Pilgrim. And then he ended up moving to Harrow in California, where he's sort of been reimagining and reinvigorating the, the brand and the whole company and done quite a remarkable job. But his overall story is it's just amazing. It's just brilliant. And we sort of go start to finish right through it in the podcast. And it's just it's just fantastic. And I I suppose that's why they're they're making a, a movie about his life story, which sort of due to, to come out at the end of this year, sort of November time at some point. Um, so yeah, look out for that. I think it's called Ride. And what I've done as well, because obviously John mentions a lot of different riders throughout, so if if the podcast has put you in the mood for for BMX, then I've added in the show notes a little video or edit or mini documentary about each of the, the riders that he mentions. Um, so yeah, if it does put you in the mood, check that out. I do have to say one thank you before we get into it, and that's to Rick Curran, who is a childhood friend of John's, and he heard that he was coming back over Christmas and really kindly set up the podcast uh, for me and John. Um, And it was the first time I'd I'd ever met him, and he was so warm and welcoming, so I've got to say a big thank you to to Rick for setting it up and John for for taking the time out, because he didn't really have much time back in the UK, but he did take the time out to do that. So yeah, big thanks to to both of them for, for making this happen. Um, it is a fantastic story and it's, yeah, it's probably my favourite, but yeah, I probably shouldn't have favourites. So, without further ado, let's get on with the podcast. This is episode 11 with John Bulgens. First time, like, I mean, I grew up in Glasgow, but we moved to Dundee in 86. I had a BMX, I got a BMX because of E.T. And I just loved people you know, in the movie, jumping over cars and things like that. So, um, but I had never really ridden a ramp until 88 when I went out to Brody Ferry. And that's when I met a lot of the skateboarders and met Scott Carroll for the first time. And he had this half pipe and then a few of the guys built a, a little mini ramp at the side. So that was my first sort of experience on a ramp, really. And we had sort of done kickers and everything, but they were never anything serious. I mean, that... That was awesome, but the ramps got burnt down and we ended up finding out that there was a disused uh, warehouse up in Dobbs Well. Um, there was a guy, Smod, and I'm sure Craig McKnight and Barclay Dacre were the guys that were really involved setting all that up in Stobbs Well. It was a disused factory, so we just expanded it and more and more ramps got built in there. Was that sort of on the fly, don't tell anyone? Oh yeah, totally. I mean... No one was allowed to know that it was there because you would. You would either get the the police coming around telling you to get out or, sadly, some of the, the old riffraff of Dundee used to come in and, and cause havoc. So there was a few things that it was really it's a, a need-to-know basis. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, not before long. It become pretty big and a lot of magazines were coming up and everything. You know, Rick and a few of the guys were holding contests, skateboard contests, but sometimes they would even let the bikes ride in a skateboard contest, which was crazy, you know. Personally, for myself, it was probably when we, again, that place got burnt down. It's just, 
it just sucked, you know. Like, why do, why do certain people want to destroy kids' fun? I mean, that was a lot of construction. A lot of us, you know, didn't even know carpentry, but that's if you saw some of these ramps were absolutely amazing. They were just beautifully built. So then we ended up again at Rick may know who who found the the warehouse, which is now the DCA, but that was like the second factory, and that's that's where I I loved it. That's where my riding really escalated to another level, riding in there. But right, one of your questions before was like, what was it about those those times and those people? I think we were we. When you look at it, when you look at skateboarding or when you look at bike riding, it's an art. And it was an outlet. And especially for me, instead of getting angry and getting into trouble, I would be riding my bike and it'd be such an outlet and such an outlet of freedom. And you knew there was something bigger out there for you. So you would get that out of your riding. Something I didn't realise until later on. But one thing you get when you're when you're riding, when you're snowboarding, when you're doing something so engaged it's a form of meditation like you're in the zone you're right in the present moment and i think that's what you get from from doing something that's quite extreme because if you're thinking of paying the bills or you're thinking oh that happened to me when i was a kid you're just going to crash you're not present to it so if you can really live in the present moment and i think that's why there were so many people that were living in riding and skating in those days that went to do amazing things because they did see so much greatness from a little piece of wood <laughs> or riding a bike and yeah back then I mean Scott had sort of Scott Carroll had stopped riding and so many people had stopped riding BMX was dead so what sort of time was that then I'd been uh, late 80s but definitely early 90s like 92 I know in 92 I was the only one riding a BMX in Dundee so I was riding with all the skateboarders. So a lot of my riding was really influenced by all the skaters. Like I remember Craig McKnight was the first person I saw try this massive wall ride at the back. There was two big ramps at the back of the DCA and uh, he was going to cross from one onto the wall. I mean, this thing was nine foot tall and he was getting up about 14 feet. And I'm just like, holy shit. So if he can do it on a skateboard, that's it. And I'm doing it on a bike. And then that really just changed it for me but there was so many like when I look at that there were so many amazing people came from from that time that were just so present to their own greatness not boasting about your greatness but just being present to hey I've got something here and just creating anything out of nothing like if you can leave the past behind you and create from now anything is possible like you and I are just sitting here talking and this wasn't possible a month ago, but you know, from one person talking to another, we're sitting here. Yeah. So you can create anything you want, and and again, when I was younger, people would be like, "Ah, oh, stop dreaming," but I, I tell everyone to dream, dream big, because once you put that into existence, you create it, you can achieve it. It really is. It's right in the palm of your hand. Your world is the palm of your hand. So. And do you think a lot of that that greatness came from the? The social aspect of it as well. Yeah, I mean, we were outcasts. <laughs> like, I mean, you look at it, a bunch of kids in Dundee skateboarding and BMXing. Oh, that's so California. You try hard. But it was an outlet. 
a lot of people just couldn't understand that. It's like, this is Dundee, this is Scotland, this is who we are, and this is how you should live. And it's like, but look where Dundee is. I mean, it's it's a major capital, and the amount of talented people have come out of this city are known globally. So why can't we be a global city, <laughs> really? So at what point did it go beyond more than just a hobby for you? I mean, yeah, it was probably when I moved to Australia, but I'll, I'll stay in the UK just now because we started going down to England and everything for right. all the contests. Mm-hmm. But even going to the contests, it was just catching up with your pals. Like the Scottish would go down and, oh my God. So the boys from Aberdeen, Kirkcaldy and Glasgow, we would all sort of meet near the border and there'll be just this train of cars and, and vans and everything heading down south. But when the Scottish would head down to England, it was, you could ask any of the, the English guys back then, it was like, oh shit, the Scottish are here. <laughs> <laughs> we would cause havoc. I mean, I won't go into too many details of what we would do, but it wasn't about winning the contest. It was about having a great laugh. And uh, whoever won, they deserved it. It was amazing. And that's something else I got from from this sport is it's an individual sport like you are just on your bike yourself but it's so much of a team um when you're on that platform and your competitor drops in and he has an amazing run you're so happy for him for two reasons one he he's he's amazing but secondly he's just stepped it up so you have to step it up and if you don't you know, you take your hat off and you're like, yeah, you, you killed it in that, that last run. So kudos to you because it, it's amazing. The big change for me was when I moved to Australia because I could ride every single day. Like riding in Scotland was a wee bit cold and wet. And especially when a lot of every single ramp that we built, every factory that we moved into, there was always someone who was jealous of our happiness would destroy it not realising how many hours, man hours, to build all these ramps, they would destroy it. So when I moved to Australia, I was riding all the time and that was when I realised that it was something serious. And What, what prompted that move to Australia then? The, the last burning of the factory. I was just like, this why, is it. Why Australia then? I would have went to America, but I couldn't get into America. And uh, Australia, I had family. So my mum and dad um, have family down there. They were in Perth and in Brisbane, or in Canberra at the time. But I saw a video from Melbourne, Australia, and I saw there was a big scene there, and there was lots of parks and everything. So I thought, well, I'll start off in Melbourne and travel around the country and end up in Perth. I stayed in Melbourne for 18 years. (laughs) There was such a good scene there. Back then, it was like the US were the best riders, then the UK, then Australia hardly anyone had even heard of. So when I was living when I was living down there, there was a lot of tricks that I was doing that were a little bit far ahead when I got to Melbourne and then the all the skate parks were just amazing. So it was a different it was a just a different lifestyle, definitely. So that that transition, that change that allowed you to stand out then? Oh yeah. I mean I went down there with one of the latest bikes that were made in America it was like one of the first five that were ever made so I had that shipped to me it was all custom made and it it was crazy I arrived the day I was leaving so I had my bike shipped from America it had arrived in Aberdeen airport my mate 
picked it up, drove it down to Dundee, and then the next morning we're up at five to drive to Edinburgh to fly to Australia. So I turned up in Australia with the, the most latest and greatest bike, and then I was, you know, it's a different riding style. My riding style was more like skateboarding. So when I turned up there, yeah, you stood out, and then a Scottish accent. <laughs> People were like, whoa, where are you from? <laughs> I can't even get the Australian accent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely stood out with, with all that. And and again, you know, just being uh, a little Scottish crazy maniac on a bike, didn't care. Like you would slam, I mean, you break so many bones. I have broken so many bones. Sometimes it's actually hard to remember a few things from the concussions that I've had, but fro- broken my skull four times. Broken my C1, C2, and C3, but we can go into that later on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, when I can't remember people's names, I'm like, oh, you know, it's a concussion. So, <laughs> it's a good excuse. <laughs> so, then you sort of you stepped it up, like you said. So, was that to move into like sponsorship? Or? Again, it was still really just for fun. I never thought of it being serious. I mean, in '95, no one was making money in BMX. Matt Hoffman. He was a he was the biggest rider at that time and the biggest rider from the late eighties. He invented over a hundred tricks. I mean, the guy he he was just doing his own tours, trying to promote BMX, but there was no major contests. And I think it was ninety five or ninety six. Matt and ESPN got together and started X Games, but again, that was in America. Yeah. It wasn't in the UK, and it certainly wasn't in Australia. So for me, like at that time, I was still riding for fun. But then got into a, a wee bit of acting just to to keep the the money coming in. So yeah, I know it was funny when I was leaving. When I was leaving Dundee, everyone's like, "Why are you going to Australia?" And I said, "I'm going to get on Neighbours." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm no joking. Even Rick will tell you it's like within six months of living in Australia, I was actually an extra on Neighbours. <laughs> so again, I created that. I didn't even know at the time that. Once you, you put it into existence, you can really do it. Mm-hmm. I just put it out there saying, I'm going to go on Neighbours. And that's probably the first time I realised that once you put it in, once you create something and you really do put it out there in the universe, it, it will happen. Not realising that I put it into creation of moving to Australia, I didn't understand that. But I understood it when I, when I said I was going to get on Neighbours and then I ended up on Neighbours. And I was like an extra on Neighbours for like two and a half years. So, um, and plus other, there was other things. I mean, even even when Rick, I keep talking about Rick Curran because he's next door, but even when Rick came to Australia, I picked him up at the airport and we went straight to a movie set. So <laughs> he's sitting there, you know, as a guest on the movie set. I think it might have been Mr. Nice Guy with Jackie Chan. I think it, I think it was that movie. I don't know, he would, he would tell us. Yeah, I was doing that for like three years. Voiceovers and acting and writing. So... Because again, riding, I mean, that was up until like 98. There wasn't any big contests happening until X Games had really escalated in America. And then they started having like X Games in Australia and things like that. And so those sort of contests came, but there still wasn't any major money. You could never be making making decent money out of BMX unless you were, well, back then, Matt Hoffman, Dave Mira. I mean, Dave at one point was the the most well-paid BMX rider in the world. I mean, he was getting millions a year for riding a BMX bike. But, I mean, he was on Sony PlayStation games. Even people that never knew bikes or never rode bikes played that game. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll say it here. Like, Dave took BMX into mainstream. 
like skateboarding is in mainstream. Kids will buy skateboard clothing, but never touch a skateboard. BMX has never got to that level, but uh, Dave Mira definitely took it into the, the homes of people that would never have seen it before. Matt took it with the X Games onto ESPN, but uh, Dave with those games, like Tony Hawk did with the skateboarding games. So, made a change for sure. <laughs> I'm going off in tangents here, no, sorry. <laughs> You've clearly got a, a very driven attitude. Yes. And a lot of confidence in your ability to okay. make those dreams happen. Yeah. Um, and people talk about the sort of 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Mm-hmm. How much do you think is nature and how much do you think is nurture? How mm. much do you think someone could have got to the level that you got to just by practicing every day? Yeah. Or is there just something inside people that, that you need in order to, to achieve that level? So I've got two answers to that. Like the one, I've definitely got the, the determination mm-hmm. and I'll never take no for an answer. But my writing, I would say that was a lot more trial and error. I don't think it was a gifted writer. And I'm sure my friends that will listen to this will say, hi, he was a rough one. <laughs> um, I've got some athletes that are just so gifted that they were born with that talent. So to be an amazing athlete, I think you really, you need to be gifted in some way. But for me, the determination, I'll never take no for an answer. So that, that kept me going for sure. And do you think now that, that the bar has been raised, that you, you do need that, that natural ability coming through because the, the standard is so high? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's thousands of, an ama- of amazing athletes out there. Like, I'm the, the global brand manager for a company called Haro, Haro Bikes. And so I sponsor athletes from all over the world. And... But uh, luckily, I've got the pretty much the biggest budget in the world to sponsor these athletes. So, yeah, I have the number one athletes. I mean, in the past three years, two of our athletes won gold in the X Games. A lot of athletes, particularly in sort of more extreme sports, um, it's not enough just to be a good rider. Mm-hmm. You have to have the package now. You, oh, yeah. On social media, you have to have sort of not necessarily a persona but a good personality that people can get behind and you build yep. a following out from it mm-hmm. and yeah how important is that for the, the riders that you sponsor and that you bring into the team exactly I mean I tell them it's 90% off your bike you're amazing on your bike it's natural but 90% of what I need you for is off your bike you know how you are on social media how you are in the media who you are as a person Everyone that's on my team, I mean, Dennis Anderson, he, he's a gold medalist in the X Games. He's the number one rider in the world right now. And uh, he is, he's so humble. He come, he come from a good background. His mum and dad, I know them well. Like, that's one thing I've always been proud of. Um, any Anytime I sponsor an athlete, I want to know the family. I want to know the background. I'm not just going to pick up a kid at 14 years old and say, hey, you want to ride for me? I want to talk to the parents and make sure that they are, they're fine with it. it. It's all to do with, just again, I said it before, being present to your own greatness. And like a lot of these athletes and actors, they, they are, they're, it's a job to them. You know, when someone comes up and is so sheepish and shy and they think because the athlete didn't respond to them or whatever, it's like, well, you didn't just treat them like a human being. Go up like we're having a conversation now, Ryan. Go up and just go, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I saw last week you did such and such. That was so awesome. Oh, thanks, man. 
sadly, it's the media makes that person look bigger than they actually are. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm just hanging out with Chris Bridges, ludicrous, you know, for a month. He told me he's got three friends. He's got three good friends. He knows a million people, but he's got three good friends. Because everyone treats him differently. Just because he's a Hollywood superstar. It's like, don't treat anyone differently. Treat them like you would treat your normal friends and everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I want with my athletes and, and everyone has been. People tell me, oh, I saw I saw Chad Curley at the skate park last week, but I was too intimidated to go and say hello. I'm like, go and say hello. You're riding a harrow. He's going to say hello right back. He's going to be asking you questions. He is so engaging. And that's what I want from all my athletes. None of them are a snob. None of them are going to snob off the kids. And if they do, I don't want them on the team. They have to be engaging. And that's what's going to sell his product. <laughs> In terms of like social media, just picking out one of the guys I know I follow on Instagram is Chris Kyle. Yeah. Who does it really well. Aye. And he's always putting out great content. And he's just got a, a really sort of interesting style about the way that he puts mm-hmm. stuff across and even in his riding and all but yeah he's constantly updating and posting and is that exactly how important is that for, for you guys oh 100% I'm a fan of Chris like I'm good friends with Chris I'm going to catch up with him next week I mean if he didn't ride for BSD my friend's company I'd be snapping him up Chris Chris is is a phenomenon seriously he doesn't have to ride a contest he has got so much just with his social interaction that that's what sponsors want. Like, what do you do after your contests are over? There's not many people that can really ride to that level over 30, 35 years old. But if you can continue with your media, you'll keep your sponsors. People, sadly, a lot of athletes when they're younger think the, the sponsor's lucky to have them. But it's a, it's a partnership. You're lucky to have the sponsor and the sponsor's lucky to have you. It's it's a bit of both. And with Chris, every day doing his social media and everything, it's not branding in your face, but he's promoting the brands. Mm-hmm. And that's what's that's what's brilliant about him. So and again, so approachable. I mean the first time I met him, like I don't know if he knew I was the brand manager of Harrow or not, but when I first met him and he, he heard the Scottish accent, he was full conversation and and everything else, and we got to know each other, and he found out that his sponsor, Grant Smith, who owns BSD, is my mate from Aberdeen, who lives in Glasgow, and uh, I've known him for 28 years. So, uh, yeah, when he put two and two together, he was like, oh, man, you've known each other longer than I've been born. <laughs> so, you know, that's pretty cool. And again, just speaking of that, that's I just want to say, BSD, I mean, that's a brand from Scotland. That's a brand that is one of the biggest well-known BMX brands out there in the world. My my riders say we should be more like BSD. So that's brilliant. Hearing that from Americans saying Harrow should be more like this Scottish brand, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. So proud to hear that. So um, so if you take a little bit of a step back, yep. um, so when you were in your sort of pro phase um, and then also sort of transitioning into, because I know you started up your own company as well. Yep. Um, so just talking a little bit about how that how that experience was as a, as a pro rider and then moving into, okay, I think I might want to create my own company. So, yeah, it all started. It's probably 99 when I was riding for Harrow in, in Australia. And, you know, I had, I'll tell you why I got out of the acting at that time, but uh, <laughs> I was just, yeah. So I decided I needed to get a job. And there was a job in sales at the, the Harrow distribution in Australia, in Melbourne. 
So, um, yeah, that was in 99. I just went and got an office job and really started working in the industry. That that was the first part of really, I knew that it was the sort of the end of my career. I wasn't going to be making millions out of BMX riding, but I could actually influence a lot of people maybe with with the design, the product and things like that. So I worked in the sales for three years and then shifted to another company because I couldn't move anywhere else at that time with Harrow um, Australia. So yeah, 2002, I started getting into like product development with another company and that's when I first started my first little part-time brand but I was going to Asia and really getting involved with um, a lot of the design and learning from a lot of people that um, had made their own bike companies and bike parts and everything uh, back then so that was the beginning of the industry for me. So what was the appeal of getting really hands-on because a lot of people could have done the same thing but never have gone to Asia or never done any of that. Yeah. What, what was the drive to do that then? I mean, at that time, there there was a lot of companies that had actually gone gone bankrupt. Like Schwinn was a big company. I mean, they were established late 1800s, I think it was, or early, maybe 1905, actually. So Schwinn had gone bust. GT had gone bust. There were so many brands that just weren't there. And there was an opportunity to, to start doing my own little things. So I was working for a distributor at the time and, and started this little part-time parts company. But yeah, that was awesome. It's like art. It's like I used to love drawing. So creating bike parts and frames and everything, just designing it all. I mean, when I look back now, they were disgusting. But uh, <laughs> you got to start somewhere, right? I'm no engineer. I mean, yeah, I failed everything at school. So <laughs> I'm just someone that was so passionate about um, getting it right. And that's what took me to the next level and then the next level. And then companies were asking me left, right and center. Hey, can you do that for us? Hey, can you do this? And after a while, I just went out and did my own thing called Pilgrim and did my own brand. And I think it was 2011. Pilgrim, there was, uh, you could get three gold, three silver, three bronze at the X Games. And Pilgrim Riders took four out of the nine medals, which that was pretty cool. But it also showed me at that time, there you go, you're winning, you know, the X Games but it didn't increase my sales one bit. So at that point, I think I, I understood that some of the best riders are not relatable. That's why I was saying Chris Kyle's relatable, the way he does his social media. But honestly, winning an X Games gold medal doesn't sell me another bike. I, I really got that at that point. That was in 2011. So then we have to sort of look at, well, what does sell you bikes? And it's re relatability. If you can just do a trick that most kids can understand, you're going to sell more bikes. You're going to engage with the public more. If you're doing something absolutely mind-boggling, it looks amazing, it's going to get a million views on YouTube, but it's not going to get someone off their bum to go and buy a bike because they're not going to be able to do it. Five people in the world could do it. I want to move on to talk a bit about your collection. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, when did that start then? Um, so I've got 96 Harrow bikes. <laughs> the collection spans from 1982 to 2005. It's every high-end model of Harrow bike. And that started almost 20 years ago. It was 1997. My mum and dad were living up the Perth Road and uh, they were moving house. And when they were moving house, they went in the cellar and they just found all my stuff. <laughs> they thought I took everything. 
but everything was still under there. My old bikes, there was a plaster cast from my, my leg I'd kept. There was all this crap. But instead of, mo like most parents, instead of throwing everything out, they boxed everything up in tea chests and shipped them all to Australia. So in 97, that's when I, I started putting my old bikes together. It was like, oh, wow, this is my old Haro from 1988. And, and all the memories started flowing. And that was only 10 years, really, after. But it brought memories. I've got photos of that bike in Stobbs Well, uh, riding in the factory. And then there's, there's other photos that I have of each bike. So I started to rebuild all them. And that's when eBay started, I think it was about 97, maybe 96, but 97, eBay was just kicking off. So I was actually starting to find bike parts and rebuilding the bikes. So I built my three bikes and then uh, I started to see that other bikes were coming online and I, it went from there and it went from just really wanting to do the, the history of Bob Harrow, which started your company. Um, so I collected them from 1982 to, to 1993, and that was my collection. And I mean, I re-chromed everything. All the parts were all brand new, brand new tires, all that stuff. So, I mean, that was an investment almost of $100,000 just then, just between those 23 bikes. And then when I moved to America, people, so it was four years ago, people would be emailing Haro saying, hey, how much is this bike worth? How much is that bike worth? And I'd be like, oh, it's worth this much. Oh, do you want it? Damn. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> and then that kept continuing. I was like, oh, sugar. I was, uh, I thought I was finished with the collection and now it started to expand all the way through. And even just last week before I left California, I ended up getting a 1994 Harrow Master from Sweden that it's going to take me about a year to finish. But with that bike, I now have every pro level Harrow from 1982 to 2005. I wish Harrow owned this. I mean, it's it's a museum. It really is. Mm. And looking into that, there's not one bicycle company in the world that has a model of every year um, of their existence. Mm. And I have a model of not just every year, but every high-end model of every year in Harrow's existence, which it seems pretty crazy, actually, just saying that to you now. <laughs> I know. People are probably listening on you. You're a psycho. <laughs> Who has 96 bikes and I don't ride them? Ever? <laughs> no, no. That, some tires are $1,000. As soon as you ride them, it's like it's like Star Wars figures. As soon as you open the packet, <laughs> as soon as air touches that little figure, they, uh, they've gone down in price. Yeah, I mean, I have a small display of about 30 bikes at Harrow, but they're survivors. They're all survivor bikes. And the ones I've spent thousands on re-chroming, re-stickering, or, or even if it's NOS. NOS means new old stock. So um, it's brand new. It's been in the box for 30 years in a factory, and somehow I've found it. So I've got certainly quite a few new old stock bikes from the 80s that have never touched the ground. And I know that might sound weird to some people, but again... There's some crazy collectors that collect cars. I mean, I've got a friend in England that collects aeroplanes. <laughs> aeroplanes. So I'm not that crazy. <laughs> so there's no like, there's no grand plan of what you're going to do with this. It was just, this is the end goal to get them and then I'll work it out. 
So well, I mean, the plan is to. Uh, I also started a, a website years ago called the Generations of Freestyle, and the plan is to have a Generations of Freestyle museum. But I mean, the the visual of it was each bike would have its own little glass case, and there would be like a video screen. There would be mannequins inside it, and um, dressed as 1982, dressed as 1983, 84, 85, and as you walk through which would be a big museum, but as you walk through, each time you walk, it'd be censored so that you can actually get speakers. I've heard you can get speakers that um, are like funneled and they come straight down. Instead of putting headphones on, it comes straight down on you and then you move to the next cubicle, then that one comes straight down. So, um, And you can't hear yeah, the next or the next. Sound, yeah, yeah, it's a directional sound. So, But yeah, I haven't got like a million dollars to, to build this museum. Um, but one day I'm putting it out there in existence that I know that we will have this museum. I know that one day Harrow will be USA owned again. Um, I mean, that's what I'm putting out there in the universe. Even offered Taiwanese that own Harrow, even offered them double what it's worth and they won't sell it. So I've met some amazing, powerful people over the years that have just offered me millions of dollars to invest in my passion and it's crazy like just yeah 10 days ago I'm in New York and I'm at a table with millionaires multi-millionaires and billionaires 10 of us just having dinner and there's wee Scottish John and <laughs> <laughs> just like but everyone was so engaged that are like what is it about you what do you have and it's they you can't buy passion you you can't teach it so I've had so many people over the years, especially the past few years in America, just be like, I want to invest in you. Like, what is it? And say that to everyone with, with passion. Can, you can achieve anything. Because it's, it's that passion that then led you to where you are now. Oh, yeah. I mean, passion for bike riding, but it was. It was passion for life. It was passion for humanity. Growing up, like, I remember, yeah, I would. it would always be me, 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 me. But as you get into the sport, as I was saying before, it's about lifting your, your peers. It's about lifting other people up. A great leader lifts, never puts you down. And uh, you'll never hear me putting anyone down. And again, same with my athletes. You'll never hear them dissing anyone else. You've got no one else, nothing nice to say, don't say it. I mean, it is the passion that really took me where I am today. Um, like, like the job at Harrow. This is a passion for the brand, right? 100%. I mean, I believed in this brand more than, than Bob Harrow himself. Bob's created this, this company. Um, Bob is the main stuntman in E.T. E.T. is the reason I got into BMX. And now I'm the brand manager of his com former company. But uh, the passion, I knew that I was going to be the global brand manager of this company. So much so that I was on a Skype call with the president back in 2012 from Melbourne, Australia. And he says, John, we know you've got more passion than anyone for Harrow, but our shareholders are not paying for a foreigner to move to America. This was on the Wednesday and I said, Joe, I'm going to come to America next week. Can you interview me? And he goes, John, they're not going to give you the job. And I said, but I'm flying over. Do you have some time to see me next week? And he says, yeah, well, look, we could fit you in next Wednesday. So whilst we're talking on Skype, I'm booking a flight to America. It cost me $2,300 to go to my own interview. 
that I was told I wasn't going to get the job. <laughs> but I was so passionate. I mean, I'm shaking right now. I was so passionate and so driven that I knew the company had sort of lost direction, it lost its way. It was trying to be everyone else. It was trying to be every other brand. But in the interview, I said, all you have to be is yourself. You just have to be Haro. The interview was meant to be two hours. It lasted two and a half days. <laughs> we ended up, he had a meeting at Vans uh, headquarters, uh, designing a shoe. I ended up going to Vans, and they all know me, so I knew the guys at Vans and everything, and, and we're in this meeting, and uh, I'm, I'm talking about the design and helping the design of this freestyle shoe. And they're like, John, what are you doing here again? He goes, oh, I'm on an interview. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing just, it lasted two and a half days. Every staff member at Harrow interviewed their new boss. You know, that was pretty crazy. And that, that was brilliant. Like, they were, you know, staff were asking me, you know, what, what can you bring to this company? And uh, why do you want to be here? And, and things like that. It was brilliant hearing that from staff, not just from the president of the company, which I thought was great. Because, um, I mean, you do that face-to-face, you can get that passion across. Yeah, totally. One-to-one mm. that you can't get in a Skype call or even an hour-long interview. You, you can never display that. Exactly. Like everyone, when I left, were just like, oh, my God, this guy knows more about Harrow than all of us put together. But that was my that was my argument, that just be yourself. Be yourself as a rider. Don't be a clone. And it's the same as with the company. Since, uh, you know, the, the former president, Jim Ford, who was partners with Bob Harrow, left Harrow, um, they had lost their way. Everyone, when I, when I started there, there was comments coming left, right and centre, all over media. Oh my God, Harrow's totally changed. And my response was, we've not changed. We're just back to being Harrow. And it wasn't me. I just opened the gateway to sort of say, look, just be yourself. And the first year we started a campaign called Destinations and it was all about where will your bike where will your bike take you? More importantly, where will your passion take you? I wanted for twelve months, every month, to have a different destination. If you, you Google Harrow destinations, the first one that'll probably come up is Paris. And it's uh, one of my athletes, Matthias Danois from La Bastille. And uh, he's doing this amazing, amazing balancing stunt spinning around like crazy the most talented rider i mean he's a talented flatland rider and this eiffel tower just towering above him and everyone knows where the eiffel tower is it's in paris so then we did um the sydney opera house and i did this campaign from all over the world the president and you know my financial control everyone's like john how much is this going to cost and the scotsman in me said six thousand dollars for the whole the whole lot and he's like you can't do that. <laughs> but what I did was I looked at where the travel was for the guys in the next 12 months and got local photographers. I had Simon Tabron, X Games gold medalist, um, doing a surfer across Abbey Road. So Simon's from Liverpool, lives in California, but there he is doing a surfer on the, the zebra crossing, you know, and then there's photos from around London, you know, there's Houses of Parliament. And we went out and did a photo shoot that night because um, at that day we were over in London, uh, for a book launch. So all the flights and accommodation was already covered. And I just got a local photographer from London who was iconic in the BMX industry. Went all over, all over the world. We had uh, photography in Shanghai with Pearl Tower in the background. So it was always a, an iconic piece in the background. And again, I've no marketing degree or nothing like that, but I just had a vision of where my bike took me, where my passion took me. 
yeah, people saw this as a completely different Harrow. As I said, it wasn't a different Harrow, it was just Harrow had lost its way for a few years, now we're back. You're, you're amazingly confident and positive. Mm. But obviously going into that big company and trying to shake everything up, Yeah. what was the most difficult part of, of that? <sighs> Hopefully America doesn't hear this, but it was the, the negativity. So many people said, you can't do it. I mean, there was more people in that company didn't like their jobs than liked their job. If you don't like it, why are you here? Unless you love this. Like, this is a privilege. I know a thousand people that want your job. This is a privilege to be here. If you're the warehouse guy or if you're the managing director, you're all an intricate part of this company. So what happened was I couldn't change their ways. There was, you know... A lot of negativity. What happened was a really, I mean, I've been told this, I just spread so much love and passion in the building that the negativity couldn't handle it and it just disappeared. Like it really did. And now, you know, every day people are smiling. We changed the colours of the walls, they're all bright or bright yellow now. You know, it's like you you walk in there. Um before you would walk into the hallway and it was just grey and there'd be a receptionist and there'd be a, a logo that says Harrow, and that was it. Now you walk into the reception area, there's um, a timeline of all the athletes that ever rode for us, like the Hall of Fame of Harrow athletes. There's, on the right-hand side, there's my little miniature 30-bike museum, and you walk through a timeline, the 80s, the 90s, and then the 2000s. Um, but before, yeah, people would say, it didn't even feel like a bike company when we came in. Now this feels like Harrow. And uh, you walk through that destination almost every day as you walk up to your offices. So everyone, it's like you're reminded every day of why you're here. Yeah, there's so much joy and happiness um, from everyone that it's they, they feel privileged and proud to be a part of a, a company and making kids' lives amazing again, like getting on a bike and loving it. And it shows in your product. Even when I got there, I said, I can't market this. Like, there's no passion behind it. There's... It's just thrown together um, from products that are already being distributed around the world. I said, we need to get back in and start designing all our own parts so the bikes stand out. And it really does. I mean, the bike stands out a lot more on the shop floor now from designing our own stems, cranks, rims, tires. Like 80% of the bike is now all our parts, whereas 80% of the companies out there are using the generic crank or the generic handlebar, anything you can just buy in a Taiwanese buyer's guide, which is pretty much your yellow pages of bike parts. And I felt that was very lazy. So it takes a little bit more work, but the passion pays off. Mm -hmm. And we've had us, BMX is, is quite tough at the moment because there's over 200 brands out there, but there's only still the same amount of people buying bikes. So what's happening is um, there's 200 brands taking out of the industry, but there's only 10 percent are putting back in promoting it and it's making it very difficult so yeah anyway i'm going to tangent again <laughs> so what's next then what's what's because you've always got this vision this dream this goal and what what's next for harrow and what's next for you yeah um i mean 2017 we've we've already got our 2018 line done so they get launched in june we're about to start working on 2019 which is absolutely crazy but it's the same as the car industry we, we're always about two years ahead. We have to really work on it. 
the growth of the the company we're we're growing in a down market but it is because there's so much passion in the brand this year coming you know i mean i'm open to any and all possibility putting it out there going to do a bit more voiceovers do a little bit of work up in uh in hollywood a little bit more there's a few offers on the table i'll always be in bmx i'll always be a part of harrow but uh so is there a desire for that little scottish voice there it is there is i'm one degree of separation between myself and ewan mcgregor sasha alexander who plays my mum in the movie we just did Uh, sorry we haven't even spoke about that sorry yeah she's invited us up for dinner and her best friend is ewan and then ali who's the producer of the movie his last one he did he had tommy flanagan starring in the movie so stuff like that so it's there's yeah an amazing thing for scottish actors in hollywood right now and i'm especially in california everyone loves your scottish accent (laughs) so you've sort of alluded to the the film already that's on the horizon yeah Yeah, do you want to talk a bit about how that came about wow yeah yeah i mean it's a yeah i met a hollywood producer a year year and a half two years ago uh, Ali Afshar, who uh, who's in he he stars in like Three Kings with Mark Wahlberg. There he's been in so many movies. He was a professional um, drag racing champion. He has the fastest Subaru in the world, like sixteen hundred horsepower Subaru. So he's a big fan of Harrow bikes. He used to ride a Harrow in the eighties, and he saw I designed this bike in two thousand fourteen, and he was like, "Hey, John." Um, I'm this Hollywood producer and I'm like yeah whatever sure you are and he's like any chance I could uh, get a bike from you because I love I love it I want to hang it up above my Aston Martin collection all right so he got a few few bikes hung them up a year later we did another bike and he's like hey can I come down and pick up that bike because I want to take you out for lunch I'm like okay so he drives down and he's like so how'd you get into BMX and so I told him told him my past and he was just like, oh my God, that is a story. He said, I'm going to make your movie one day. And I'm like, yeah, sure you are. So uh, 18 months later, uh, there we are filming a Hollywood movie with uh, Chris Bridges, who's ludicrous and fast and the furious. So he plays my father, Eldridge Bulgens. Sasha Alexander, she's in NCIS and Shameless and so many other shows in the States. She plays Mariana Bulgens, um, my mother. And uh, I'm adopted by Marianne and Eldridge, so I play the biological father at the beginning, who's a violent alcoholic in Glasgow. And I'm still blown away by it. I mean, it comes out in November 2017. And yeah, we've got premieres all over the world. The main one will be Hollywood, Chinese theatre. We won in London, one in Sydney. But uh, I'd love to do one at the DCA. <laughs> and Shane Graham, who plays myself, in the movie, um, who's also in a TV show with Pierce Brosnan right now uh, called The Good Son. He messaged me the other night and said, uh, I want to come to Scotland for the premiere. So that would be awesome. He's the star of the movie. Yeah. Ludacris has been here before many times, so has Sasha. They all love Scotland, so I'm not going to promise they'll come. But yeah, if it's in the budget and uh, the movie does make something, then, then great. But it, it's all about you're not your past. The past doesn't take dictate who you are today. You do. And you can create anything from nothing. And that's what I was saying before. 
And that's what the message is about. It's about domestic violence. It's about racism. It's about passion, love, determination. And you were asking before, you know, where does that come from? And it does. It comes from being a, a kid living in the streets in Glasgow, being scared to go home because my dad was going to beat me up, to then, you know, moving in with my, being fostered by Marianne and Eldridge and, and then being my parents today, being my parents for 34 years. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of love and passion in the movie. And Chris actually said on camera that this is the best movie he's ever done. They won an Oscar for the movie Crash. So I don't know. I'm not I'm, I'm, <laughs> setting the I'm, bar high. I, I'm not <laughs> setting the bar too high. But uh, yeah, it all comes down to distribution. It depends on who picks up the movie or not. Because there's some amazing movies out there that just don't get the legs they deserve. Yeah, here's hoping. They've got a movie coming out in March called The American Wrestler that they did. And John Voight's and that. Um, William Fitchner. And young George plays plays Ali in the movie and it's about a guy from Iran an Iranian moving to America and then all the racism in the 80s because of all the troubles happening then about his struggle and then becoming a, a champion wrestler and so that comes out in in March and if that gets some legs that's really going to put the the production team on the radar for the next movie which is uh, Running Wild and that's the one with Tommy Flanagan and uh, Jane Seymour who was the, the Bond girl. I met her, I was at her house like two months ago. It's all surreal, but yeah. So some amazing people, but everyone is just, everyone's just absolutely present to the world and the struggles that we're all going through and just let go of all that negativity because if we fill this world with positivity, it will. it is a great place, it really is. And that's what I do with my friends. All my friends are positive, powerful, passionate people. And it rubs off on you. And you are the 10 people you surround yourself with. That's who you become. You're still yourself, but you are that loving, passionate, powerful person. We all have it in us. It's just hiding sometimes. So if, if anyone does want to get in touch with you, or where would they find you? Yeah, John Bulgens. Um, so J-O-H-N-B-U-U-L-T-J-E-N-S. So it's uh, I'm all private on social media, but Harold Bikes is open. Great. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, right. Cheers, Cheers, mate. Cheers. So that was John Bulgens. What a story. Uh, it's just fantastic. Um, such a nice guy. So, so positive. That amazing can-do attitude is just brilliant. So really, really enjoyed it, having him on, and a big thanks to him for that. If that has put you in the mood for BMX, then yeah, check out the show notes, and there's all those links to the videos in there of all the, the riders that are mentioned, um, and a bit of nostalgic footage in there as well of the old factory skate park that I, I found on my, my travels. If you did enjoy the story, please share it out on Twitter. I'd really appreciate all the, the tweets and the retweets, because um, yeah, we're just trying to spread the podcast and get as many listeners as, as we can. So and if you're not following already, get on at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram and go tell all your friends. So until next week, that's it. Catch you then. Goodbye. <laughs>